No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give to the People the Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show, which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. I'm joined by my co-host, Marilia Duffels, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. So feel free to call in and be part of the discussion at 888-627-6008. We're starting a couple minutes late tonight due to some technical difficulties, but we're all here, I think. Uh, Marilia, you're here. Yep, right? I am here. And and tonight we have a special guest, uh, Daryl Lamont Jenkins, who is the executive director of One People's Project. Uh, now I will tell you about One People's Project, but uh, since we have Daryl, let's let Daryl tell you about it. Uh, Daryl, are you with us? Oh, hey, I know I'm going to be on a good show if you're starting off with Sweet Honey in the Rock. Oh, yeah. you know what? I mean, you got to love these own. guys, right? DC's <laughs> own, right? You know, it, yeah. I'm a fan. I'm a fan of uh, you know one of them. Um, their daughter Tosh, is Tashi Reagan, and I'm I'm a huge fan of um, yeah, Bernice Reagan's um daughter um has a lot of good albums out, and well, um, you know, yeah, so, you know, I'm just all sweet honey in the rock all the way through. So of course. <laughs> You know, because it's music with a purpose, right? Their 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 music is beautiful, but they've always been so socially active, and they're and they're they're uh, DC natives. And I'll tell you a secret, Daryl. If you listen to that whole song, that outlines the whole struggle for DC statehood from the beginning till today. I've never heard a better explanation of 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 the situation than that. So that's one of the reasons we play it, but. But we're happy to have you on the show because you do important work as well uh, and, and, and work that makes our community, uh, I hope it makes it a, a safer. It certainly makes us more aware. But can you tell us about that? Tell us about One People's Project and, and what it does and why you do it. Well, I always thought that it keeps us safer. And I think it keeps us, um, it helps us to learn how to keep ourselves safe as we go along. Um, yeah. I'm just going to say it flat out so people make no bones, so I make no bones about this, so people have no misunderstandings where I'm coming from. I am, I'm anti-fascist. I'm an anti-fascist activist and I've been doing anti-fa for everybody who are familiar with that word. Um, it's not a bad word unless you're a bad person. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, I've been doing this for about 35 years um, and uh I started when I was in the Air Force, or even probably even younger than that. Um, when I was when I was a kid, I was curious about all of these things, 
and, uh, involving hate politics and the Klan and all of that. But um, in 2000, we founded One People's Project as a response to um, a white supremacist rally that was taking place in New Jersey, where I'm from. And after that, we thought it would be a good idea to maintain that coalition, or at least maintain um, the entity that we created, um, to just simply monitor um, those on the right, specifically on the right, who we think that are um, causing harm to a lot of people. I mean, after um, after that after that rally, we just figured, you know what, something's going on, and, and we really got to stay on top of it, and we got to push back against it. And that's what One People's Project has been doing for about 21 years now. And let me ask you, are you seeing more activity with these people on the alt-right? I mean, is this like, because I was involved with a group 35, 40 years ago uh, called the Southern Poverty Law Center. And they have, uh, uh, as you probably know, a longstanding project called Clan Watch. Uh, are, are you seeing more activity from the alt-right now than, than we've seen in the past? You know what? I think, I mean, from my vantage point, it's not so much more as it is louder. I think they're feeling their oats a lot more because of what's been going on over the past five years to the point where they are, um, and they're also trying to pull every Hail Mary out of the book because they know that the politics of yesteryear, these are these are their last days. This is the last hurrah for that crowd. So what we said is one of the reasons why you see such a push against um, what they are calling critical race theory. And I say what they call critical race theory because what they call critical race theory isn't. Um, critical race theory is the study of um, how racism is applied to um, institutions, how to... Um, how to basically advance racism through our institutions across the country. And no greater example of that is how they are using it, how they are trying to use our institutions, how they're trying to use government and our laws to try to keep um, schools from teaching the history of the contributions that people of color have made. And that right there, ironically enough, is a perfect example of what critical race theory addresses. So they're really yeah. killing two birds, one stone. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and before I before I let uh, uh, Marilia ask you a question, let me just tell you that we've had uh, a critical race theory uh, person on the show, a PhD who who advocates and teaches it, and we understand that. And and yet, and it pisses me off every time I pick up the paper and read about some nut in Virginia talking about how this is something that it's not. So. Um, right, right. Uh, I hear what you're saying. Go ahead, Marilyn. I'm sorry. Oh, no, please, Mike. No need to apologize. Hello, Daryl. Nice to meet you over the airwaves. Same, same. You're welcome. Um, anyway, um, wanted to ask you on that point of critical race theory. Uh, there is a, a new book out by Howard French, as you you probably well know. He's a former New York Times Africa correspondent, now professor of journalism at Columbia. Um, his book is called Born in Blackness, um, and it's all about that. He was, he is the descendant, of course, of a slave, as I'm sure most, you know, every, every black person is. Um, he, um, 
found himself at a, a plantation home, a grand plantation home in Louisiana, um, and thought, you know, that that plantation is is selling what he called this strangely romanticized past. Um, and he he hinted to the 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 manager there uh, of the plantation's history of slavery, and the manager said, "quote We don't really emphasize in in great detail the experience of the slaves here." Um, in other words, implying to to Howard French that their exclusion from that narrative was was better for business. In other words, better for slavery tourism. Um, Anyhow, his book was favorably reviewed in the Wall Street Journal by somebody from the American Enterprise Institute, um, who also teaches at Columbia. But my question is involved, uh, revolving around the point of it seems to me that there has been a dearth or a complete lack of um, focus on the suffering of slaves. And that goes to critical race theory as well. I mean, I myself was you know, aware of suffering of slaves, but not to the extent that I found when I read Frederick Douglass's autobiography. It was so heinous as to be impossible to to swallow, to fathom. Um, and of course, it, it was gut-wrenching, brought tears to my eyes. Um, it just seems like that is not there. Whereas with the Holocaust, Everybody is sort of aware of the suffering, not everybody, but in general, it just seems that that is out there. Whereas in the critical race theory and, and everything else, um, it, it's just not brought out. The suffering, the, the suffering. I mean, it was just unspeakable, starting when the way they were auctioned off, the way they were put on the ships in, in compartments where, you know, as you know, they couldn't even stand up. So I just wonder, why is that? And do you think that? That is a problem, and that is not included. Well, here's the thing about that. Um, you know, I'm, I was nine years old when the, when the miniseries Roots came out, and <laughs> I didn't realize until later in life how important, I mean, I, of course, I knew Roots was important, but I didn't realize how important. That was the first time anybody ever saw those kinds of atrocities on mm. TV. Good. And I think since then, sadly, um, a lot of how bad it was eventually got diluted simply because it was overplayed time and time again. Because in, ad in addition to um, that experience, um, there were other experiences that we had that were um, that were ignored. And because everybody wanted to just basically focus on the slave narrative, but they just kept on, you know, as I said, diluting the impact by doing that. So here comes Howard French's book, which, I mean, it, it was it's really interesting. You know right away from um, Howard French's book that he was serious about it because he calls it, calls it Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans, and the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War. Mm -hmm. You go back as far as 1471, you're serious about trying to set the foundation as to what was going on with us globally, not just in America. So yeah. I think um, I will definitely recommend Howard French's book. I'm, on my, I'm trying to pick it up myself, actually. That's why I'm familiar with it. And I think... Um, 
what you will learn in that book um, is going to be the things that are missing. Are going to be a lot of the things that are missing. In addition, mm-hmm. um, you'll help to understand why um, there is such a pushback against um, teaching this from conservatives. Let's just be real, from conservatives teaching this because it threatens their, for lack of a better term, well-being. You know, we're mm-hmm. learning more, we're understanding more, and we are building from that history. But first, we got to know that history, and that's what they were afraid of us doing. Um, and that's one of the reasons why they call the teaching of um, Black history or history um, in general um, critical race theory. Because the, mm-hmm. um, because even though it's not critical race theory, it will still scare people enough to go to school board meetings and say, no, you can't learn about Martin Luther King. No, you have to remove those books from about the Holocaust. Remember, you said that they, um, we understand the suffering of, um, of what happened during the Holocaust, but by the same token, they're still removing the, um, the comic book mouse out of a Tennessee school district. You know? I was just so, going to say well, you know what, Mrs. Brown, who's a librarian, is absolutely infuriated with the people of Tennessee for taking a book which she thinks is really important for for students to read, for taking mouse out of the, the school system. But let me ask you something, Daryl. Uh, did we push racism under the rug? Is that what we did in the 1960s? All of us that went out in March and and did we push it under the rug instead of deal with it? Uh, and then and and this is why it's coming back now uh, with roaring its rearing its ugly head is that we really never dealt with these things. We just kind of maneuvered around them do you think that's and now that we see things like george floyd and and the thing that happened in charlottesville and and you know just today a guy was arrested for painting swat stickers on the walls in 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 union station uh are we seeing this come back because we didn't deal with it yeah i definitely believe that i think um i wouldn't say um people ignored it in the 60s because obviously they didn't. I would say that as the 70s went on and the disco era and all of that, remember the um, whole disco sucks thing came from attacking black music, you know. Um, So they, and remember the group, the organization, the Manhattan Institute, which was, um, was founded in 1977. Now the Manhattan Institute are the people that are pushing back against critical race theory. That is the organization that has mounted all these campaigns. And what they initially um, were um, founded to do was diminish the gains of the civil rights movement and relocate um, black families and a black community out of the urban areas, which today would sound pretty good, which would say, we would say yeah. that that would be fine. But back in 1977, that was the only place where you saw the urban areas were the only place where you saw black political power. And they was trying to diminish that. And, um, to this day, you see what, um, and basically the, um, Manhattan Institute lives off of what critical race theory addresses. And we see it in this day and age when they're trying to, um, attack critical race theory. 
So you see that going on in the 70s. You move into the Reagan 80s where they try to diminish it, um, diminish the presence even more. But then the pop culture by the late 80s started pushing um, back against that and saying, no, we're going to be represented. Spike Lee, Public Enemy, Boogie Down Productions. Um, we started look, listening to Sweet Honey in the Rock a lot more. Yeah. And the apartheid movement. Um, you know, all all of these things about black culture started um, coming up to the surface, and they kept on trying to push it down. Then L.A. blew up, <laughs> and that kept that from happening. And, you know, that set the foundation for a new generation. And we start seeing, as of the 2000s, those that were a part of that generation back in the late 80s, early 90s, now had careers. And all of a sudden, we had the first black president as of 2008. And now they're really scared. So they give us a white supremacist president in 2016, yeah. and they haven't looked back. <laughs> they really think that this is their last chance to maintain the control before um, from us, and um, or to rather keep the control from us. It's not really going to work, but um, but they're going to try. They're going to try. Um. First of all, let me stand up for disco because I still have my platform shoes and my Don <laughs> Summers records. So oh, they Donald know they Summers lost. Records. They know they lost. And I'm waiting. I'm waiting for it to come back. It's gonna. It's gonna. I don't know if I can get into those pants anymore, but but <laughs> I still got the shoes. Uh, anyway, let me just ask you: Do do groups, even if you're not a part of this group, the rhetoric, what you see? on social media, does that inspire people like this murdering little, I don't even know what to call him, Kyle Rittenhouse who walks in from Kenosha? I mean, you don't even need to be a member of the Oath Keepers or or, uh, the Proud Boys or any of these groups, right? are, 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 Are they inspiring young people to, to, you know, act out violently? It's a tool, but I would also submit that it's also a tool for us as well. Um, they get the pushback from us, who, unlike them, can actually come out into the light. We can actually be on the ground. One of the scariest, yes, it is something that inspires. It is something where they like to organize and, they, um, and be influential. But by the same token, when I always tell people, the scariest three letters that um, to these characters is IRL in real life because they can't handle it when you're in when their people are in their face. They can talk trash all day long online. I'm quite sure after this um after this podcast, you're going to hear a whole lot of nonsense from these clowns on Twitter and on Facebook and something like that. But you'll never see them. You'll yeah. never see them, and that also means they'll never really um have the impact that they want to have. Honestly. Yes, they can cause damage. Do not discount that. They can cause damage, and they can cause it through the internet, and they have done it before. But that, but because we are able to do something in real time, in real life, out away from the computer, away from the internet, when we are able to establish and, and form things outside of that entity, they've already lost, and we just got to remember that. Well, you know, what comes to mind to me, Daryl, and I don't know if you can get this anymore, but about 40 years ago, 
I saw the most amazing thing. It was a home of all things. It was a Hallmark uh, uh, special, a Hallmark card special, and it was called Skokie. And I don't know if people know what happened in Skokie, but you know, Skokie was settled by by Jews that were were you know uh, uh, escaping the the Holocaust, uh, and the American Nazi Party planned a big demonstration there, and there was a fight between the the Jewish community and the Nazis, and the ACLU took the part of the Nazis. They took the side of the Nazis saying that, you know, even hate speech was protected under the First Amendment. Uh, has that changed? Do, do we still think that that you're allowed to say whatever you want? Do, haven't we we passed some things, some, some laws against hate speech, haven't we? We have. Um, and I think, um, and I'll be honest with you, they use... Um, that side uses free speech as a crutch, as a red herring. Um, as the truth of the matter is, their free speech is not going to be violated. They're mad because they are. We are using our free freedom of speech to respond to them. We're also using our freedom of association to not have anything to do with them. That's what Neil Young did with Spotify. He said, "Okay, you're going to have Joe Rogan on. I'm out." You know, and they always get angry about that. Um, I would say also um Skokie by the way was one of um was one of the things that helped me tr- um understand exactly what was going on when I was a kid. Um when I was uh I, I saw it for the first time and I didn't really understand what not how bad Nazis were. And remember, I'm eleven years old when this is on. It starred Danny Kay and everything, and I remember him from our Christmas. Right, special. Danny Kay, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> It was a wonderful piece. It really was. And it was and what it took for me to understand how bad the Nazis were was simply them using the N-word. Yeah. Simply them using the N-word. And once you once I heard that, I said, okay, so they are the bad guys. So I started going after Nazis too. <laughs> I'm 11 years old going after Nazis. But, <laughs> but, I, but I recognize who they, but I recognize, I mean, it was just like recognizing the Klan was bad, recognizing the Nazis were bad. You know, and just keeping an eye on when it turns up on TV or in my weekly reader or whatever. But when, but when we are talking about freedom of speech, you have to remember that that freedom of speech is afforded to you as well. And they cannot take that away from you either, no matter how much some folks on our side will try to do that. How many times have you heard people say that the best way to fight hate speech is with more speech? Mm-hmm. And how many times have you seen people try to use that more speech and the retort will be, well, why don't you just ignore them? I thought we were supposed to be using more speech to fight back against them. And you're telling me to shut up. Freedom of speech does not mean we keep our mouths shut and they say whatever. That does not work. I mean, it works for them, which is why they encourage that kind of thing. But we really need to stop um, allowing folks on our side, folks who know better, to tell people to keep the pipe down while they're talking. No, that does not work. But what does happen when you do that is people get frustrated and they lash out. And that's why you see um, the flare-ups all the time, the uh, the violent flare-ups. Well, what about what Dr. King said? 
What about, uh, you know, an eye for an eye leaves both parties blind? Is there something about our speech that needs to be different from their speech? What I would say about um, our, our speech will be different than, um, than their speech because it will be a lot more measured, of course. It will be a lot more educated, of course. Um, but, but by the same token, we have to maintain a bit of aggression. Theodore Roosevelt also said, speak, Theodore Roosevelt says, speak softly and carry a big stick. Doesn't mean you have to use the stick. But you better be prepared for whenever things go in the other way. The whole focus on trying to deal with um, with this element, with any kind of um, dangerous element, is just be responsible with how you do it. Don't don't lash out. Do not um, become reckless in how you approach things. That's basically rules of life. Um, but but the truth of the matter is, whenever we don't tell each other that enough. That's what the problem is. And we have to really ignore those who try to discourage you from dealing with this element, because that's one of the things that is a detriment to us in this day and age. They're not going away until you make them go away. Just be a little bit tactful when you do try to make them go away. You're speaking Gandhi's language, Daryl, and I wonder, you know, after the most horrific fascist bit of history, which is the Holocaust and Hitler, you'd have thought the world would have vowed never to revisit that episode, but yet it continues. And But in addition to the psychology behind these people, which is obvious, um, to people who who sort of focus on this, what are the malevolent forces in society that continue to prop this up? I mean, what's in it for them? You you know, you can look at a war and say, okay, a lot of warring is to get the spoils of war, you know, to conquer lands and to get resources, natural, whatever, for 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 yourself, for your country. But what are the spoils in this war of theirs, in the KKK or, or what, whoever these people are? When you talk, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be real and just say it blanketly, conservatives are the problem right now. And the main reason why is because conservatism seeks to, as the term would suggest, conserve. But look at it, what it is they're conserving or what they're trying to conserve. Remember, mm-hmm. there is a way that we all grew up. There was, a, there was a society that we were all raised in. People are afraid of change. But when you do everything you can to prevent that change, you become a detriment to that society. For, I mean, mm-hmm. unless you're saying that the change is, if the change is actually bad, of course, Yes, fight that. But when the change is positive, when when you're doing nothing but complaining because you see too many black people or or not enough white people, as they would say, in um in commercials, then you're the one that's wrong. Mm. You're not. Yeah. You're not. <laughs> I've had that argument just a couple of days ago. I, I, I don't want to. You know, I didn't mean to interrupt, Daryl, but that's exactly why. I'm not a conservative, you know, because I looked around and I said to myself, uh, 
there's only one thing, and my scientist uh, co-host can back me up on this, there's only one thing that's found everywhere. It's found everywhere in nature, it's found in society, every rock, every little living thing. The only thing that's consistent throughout the universe is change. And to stand uh -huh. against change, in my opinion, is mm -hmm. like standing against the tide. You know, you need to learn how to figure out the best way to make change positive, as you point out, Daryl, and, and not try to stand against it. But I understand that people that's, are afraid yeah. of change. They really are. That's a yeah, very I'm sorry. Go on. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, that's okay. That's a very good point from, from you and Mike. Um, but I would also like to add that the psychology of this is seems to me is that whenever there's aggression or anger it's typically based upon fear that's typical 101 psychology you're going to make me quote yoda uh, you're going to make me quote yoda and i always do this you're going to make me quote yoda because he was <laughs> the one that because he has a line in the phantom menace where he says that you know Fear turns to um, anger. Anger turns to hate. You know, exactly. and it's like um, you got to fight that. You got to fight that. We are a society that evolves, and here in the United States, we have been lucky enough to have a society where we could evolve for 150 years. Because in that time, we never had a serious war on on our shores unless you want to talk about the, um, the war against indigenous people, but it was nowhere near the more densely populated areas of the country, and the densely populated areas of the country were allowed to grow, were allowed to thrive. So since mm -hmm. the Civil War, we've just been doing nothing but building and building and building this empire that we eventually got. But, um, but even now we're looking at this empire and saying, we can do better than this empire. <laughs> so, well, what, I mean, so, I, so that would scare people too by the way and I just have to add that this is the oldest of the oldest political maneuver in the history of mankind people have been saying since the beginning of time that your troubles are not your fault they're the fault of somebody else they're the fault of your neighbor they're the fault of a different race. They're a fault of a different group. And it's the easiest way to, you know, it's the old thing of divide, it's the old saying of divide and conquer. You know, that, that if you can keep people apart, it's easier to manipulate them. It's harder to, to manipulate them. So, you know, I come from an immigrant family and 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 the immigrants on my mother's side who were Italian, they they lived in a segregated neighborhood in North New Jersey. They only dealt with other Italians, and they believed every stereotype about everybody because they right. were afraid of everybody. They were afraid of everybody that wasn't like them, and and you know, and they would tell you that they would tell you that those were the their troubles. If if everybody in America was just an Italian immigrant, everything would be perfect. You know, they they forgot about the mafia and a few other a few other things that the, the Italians brought over with them. But but uh but you know that was it. They they you know and the local politicians uh used it. I always think you quote Yoda 
and, and, and I quote Huey Long, who said, you know, the 100,000 Frenchmen in New Orleans, your house could burn down, your baby could drown. Not one of those Frenchmen would care. And that was a class thing. He got elected on that in, in Louisiana because the French people of French descent were the wealthy people. Uh, so it, it, you're, you're right when you say we both have speech and you're right, it works both ways sometimes. Uh, but let me ask you, are we, in your opinion, as you watch these groups, Daryl, are we going to see more January 6th? Mm. Are we going to see more Charlottesville? Are we going to see more of these as, as, as we progress? Well, I would say that, you know, people keep equating January 6th to the beer hall push. And mm -hmm. I would say that um, the beer hall push was the beginning of Adolf Hitler. It was not the end. Yeah. So they're going to keep on, as Robert Evans would say, they're going to keep on pushing. And um, the difference between Adolf Hitler's beer hall push and January 6th is that the people that were spearheading it are the ones that were in power, were the ones that were in power at the time. So mm -hmm. you have folks on high, you have the folks on high leading the charge. They have been placed there to basically create the insurrection, create the upheaval and the disturbance. And it's not just going to come in the form of Charlottesville. It's not just going to come in the form of January 6th. It's also going to come in the form of legislation. Why is Gary Youngkin trying to launch a tip line for parents to report their kids' teachers? Oh, my That's God. Not <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, why is what? Do, do, let me explain this. Okay, yeah, I, Governor Duncan has set up a hotline for you to report your teacher. <laughs> and I don't know if you've seen what's happened on that, Daryl, but people are writing hysterical things. They're, they're making, they're lampooning it so much. One woman wrote in, they're teaching my son Arabic numerals. Someone <laughs> needs to look into this. You know? Another person wrote in, Dumbledore is teaching our children that muggles are less than full-blooded wizards. Please, you know, please look into this matter immediately. He should be fired. You know, I mean, they're just writing thing after thing. And, and, and yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous, right? Oh, Mr. Brown. Yeah, it, it, it's it's funny to hear how they respond. It's funny to yeah. hear how they're responding to it. And I'm glad that they're doing, they're lampooning it and destroying it. But by the same token, it's also disturbing that he, he had done that. And my truth to the, yeah. in all this is that you were talking earlier about free speech. When you're saying that um, you're not allowed to teach this, when you're saying that you are going to set it up so people can report um, the kinds of things that you're teaching, that, because you teach that Martin Luther King was a good guy, for example, um, that's a violation of free speech. That's a violation of every freedom that we're supposed to um, supposed to have. And I'm gonna tell you this: while people are lampooning that those um, that tip line, he's expecting white parents to complain about oh, slavery was taught here is making me uncomfortable. Mm. They keep forgetting about the black parents and what black parents can say on that tip line. And black parents need to call and let them know how their how their students are being mistreated, how their children are being mistreated in some of Virginia's schools. 
Mm-hmm. You'll see a, you, you'll see that tip line get shut down immediately. Yeah. And it shouldn't be. If it well, goes in that our, direction, in that direction, about, it shouldn't be. How about our friend Governor DeSantis? Who's in, in Florida? They got a law that you can't teach anything that makes people feel uncomfortable. No, 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 not people, white people. And white people. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, let's just get that know, straight. And, and look, how do you teach about the Holocaust without making you know? Morelli already, you know, talked about slavery and reading of Frederick Douglass's book. How do you teach about Fred, Fred about slavery or about or about the Holocaust without making people feel? uncomfortable, you know? They don't it, care. I mean, these are the same people who don't have a problem with letting, um, telling black people they should feel uncomfortable because somebody um, with the same color skin as ours um, stole a woman's purse. They'll say that we're to blame for that. But yeah. somehow, we're not supposed to talk about the history of this country. But see, here's the thing. We can either complain about it or we can do something about it. And there are way too many elected officials in federal government that can push back on this and keep it all from happening. And the frustrating thing, and the reason why um, President Biden's numbers are so low is because he hasn't. And you, and, and you can't keep saying that um, Congress is in the way. No, there are, Trump, when he was, when he was in there, didn't let Congress get in the way when he had to pass some weird executive orders to mm-hmm. um to undermine our um our constitutional rights. He can do that in reverse. Biden can do that in reverse, and yet he doesn't. I mean, it's good to hear that he is going to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court, but it means nothing if you're not giving um her or any other Supreme Court justice the tools to advance um, to advance things that protect us as a people. Mm-hmm. And that's what the scary thing is. It's not so much these idiots that keep on getting elected. As far as I'm concerned, the Republican Party and conservatives are an arena hazard, a very dangerous and influential arena hazard, but still, the real problem is the folks that are in the position to do something about it and say they want to do something about it, don't and that's got to change that's got to change in an immense way Mm -hmm. can i ask a question along those lines and along the lines of the holocaust which has sort of been a thread um through this it occurs to me that the the folks who are involved in sort of keeping up and propping up the the Holocaust and all the suffering that the Jewish people endured might see eye to eye with the black cause and the suffering that the the black and have. Yeah. And have, yeah. Why isn't there, and I know this is gonna sound wild, why hasn't them hasn't there been a movement? Because there's a lot of money, as you know, behind the Jewish cause. A lot of lobbying money, big money. Why hasn't the Holocaust sort of adopted this cause, the cause of slavery, the cause of suffering that went, and the fact that it was on the back of slavery that a lot of the U.S. was built, starting after the Civil War, of course, before, but Reconstruction and through? I think um, 
and I want to, I want to take it away from the slavery thing for one reason though, because mm-hmm. there's a lot more to black people than just slavery. Sure. <laughs> there is, there is the positive things that we have, um, that we have contributed to this country that they also don't want us to talk. They also don't want to talk about because it does include, um, their ancestors keeping us from accomplishing these things. We, mm-hmm. um, we talk about Lewis Latimer, but Black History Month is coming up in about two days. We're going to learn a lot about them. If, of course, Glenn Youngkin or, um, Ron DeSantis doesn't get in the way of it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and to that point, I always say, hey, look, if you're from those, if you're from those states and you're from a state that's fighting against all of that teaching, you get the, te- you will go out there and start teaching yourself whatever books they ban, you buy. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, we got to learn more about the Lewis Latimer. We got to know more about the Bessie Stringfields and, and so on and so forth. And if these are names that you never heard before, look them up. Um, but, but the thing is, in that regard, in that regard, I would say that there is a lot that we can unite on and have, and have. I mean, I don't. I think it's just a matter of putting it together. Really, I think it's just a matter of putting it together. Um, you know, it was funny. Be- it was funny because every Fourth of July in D.C. on the Mall. Um, there was supposed to be, there's this like kind of like storytelling festival where people from all cultures, um, have a state section of the mall of the mall where they just tell stories coming from their cultural background. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and it's beautiful to see it. And I would, I would like to recreate it once COVID is lifted. I will, um, and, and the concerns of the pandemic are gone. I would love to set that up in other parts of the country as well. Um, mm-hmm. I would say, um, ironically, I saw it during the, um, I saw it during the heyday of the Tea Party, and the Tea Party was having their rallies at the same time that this thing was going on. So I had to deal with somebody trying, somebody from the Tea Party, trying to tell me that um, only seventy thousand people died in the Holocaust. So <laughs> I'm like. <laughs> I got to get away. I'm not in the mood for this right now. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? I mean, the people that write the history books, right? They they, they influence the, the future. I learned in college about Nate Turner, Nat Turner, Matt, but I never Matt Turner, yeah. Matt Turner, I'm sorry. I learned about Nat Turner, but I never learned about the Amistad. I never learned mm-hmm. about many things in black history that you know, like you said, in, from the from the whole roots uh, broadcast. You know, I was brought up in a generation where there were people. There were actually people out there that thought slavery, for example, was like gone with the wind. Everybody was happy, and you know, nobody was abused, and they all hugged each other, and you know, and the, and the mammies loved raising white children. You know, they, they they really was kind of an attitude that was that, that was out there, and, and and that was planned. It wasn't, you know, yeah. it wasn't by accident that that a lot of these stories were, you know, weren't told. That that it, it took it took years for them, to, uh, uh, you know, to be heard. Even though even though they were well known to historians, it wasn't like like historians didn't know about the Amistad. They just mm-hmm. didn't teach it in schools, you know. Or, exactly. Or, or, and I learned or, it. Yeah. 
But I learned it because my parents taught me that. And it was funny because um, um, I've been in the process of digitizing some old cassettes that I have because um, I didn't want them to deteriorate to the point that I couldn't use them. And a lot of it was talk radio. A lot of it was talk radio from the 90s. And there was a really incredibly racist talk show host by the name of Bob Grant here in um, New York, New Jersey. He was on 77 WABC. And I was listening to one of his shows, and there was one of his callers complaining about the uh, school books of today, of, 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 of that day, of like 91, um, and putting um, slavery in a, um, in a bad light. You heard me correctly. And the reason why was because he found a 1901 um, book, a 1901 school book, which basically painted uh, um, slavery as being a good thing, and that um, the blacks could not um, progress beyond slavery. So they, they were happy where they were. And I remember even reading when Roots came out, there were some conservative books that were complaining about the culture of 1977-78. And one of the things they complained about was roots. And the reason why is because we all had um, black servants growing up, and they were never mistreated, and they were happy. So this is just doesn't make any sense to um, put it out there like slavery was this evil thing. This was 1978 this book came out. <laughs> so, well, I, I so there was always pushback against teaching this history. Let's just say it like that. Well, and I grew, I, I graduated from college in the seventies, and people used to say things like that all the time. Daryl, they would say, "Oh no, I, I, I like black people. I associate with black people. The guy that delivers my mail is black, and the guy it's that cuts my that. lawn is yep. black, and." And, you know, uh, just because I don't want them living in my neighborhood, uh, you know, that doesn't mean I don't like black people. Yeah, there's always a way to justify this. Well, we're running out of time here, Daryl. So say, you know, uh, go ahead and say something you want to say that we didn't ask you. Is there anything that you want to add to what we've been talking about? Well, there is one thing. I definitely have to hype up uh, One People's Project, my organization. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. And let people know You're if they want to support it. Yeah, the, um, the One People's Project is at um, onepeoplesproject.com. If you want to hit that donate button, please, by all means, do so. Um, you can also um, find idavox.com, which is our newsline. We write um, stories. Our whole thing is um, we write news articles about the um, um, things that are going on today. And um, we hope people get something out of it. You can always find us on, um, you can find me on um, Twitter at D. Lamont Jenkins, um, Idavox at Idavox OPP. And um, One People's Project is at One People's P-R-O-J. So um, hopefully I'll see y'all somewhere around. Yeah, Daryl, we'll make sure that you do. And Marillion, I don't, I won't speak for Marillion, but I'll just say that we hope our show is one of those voices that pushes back, um, you Absolutely. know, and because it's the price of, you know, Thomas Jefferson said it, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. We need to be vigilant about this. And, and you, you know, and I think there was, I think between the time that I graduated from college and, and Donald Trump, 
there was a great complacency in America about a lot of this. So, so thank you for being on the show. Thank you. My brother, who was an Air Force officer, would want me to thank you for your service to America. Uh, Likewise. And, and, Likewise. And I was in the Air Force. I know you were. And, and we, we, we thank you for that. And we thank you for your continued service. Marilia, anything right, you want to add? Just a Frederick Douglass saying, power concedes nothing without a demand. Never did, never will. Okay, and on that note, let's leave. And we dedicate this song to you and all the people out there working to what, toward, toward, toward what you, uh, you're trying to accomplish, Daryl. Here's an, here's an old one for Daryl from the 1990s. This is the police with <laughs> rehumanize yourself. Thank you, Daryl. Thank you, Daryl. Give the people their right to vote. Give the people their right to vote. Give the people their right to vote.